Well, hey, and welcome to episode seven of the Gospel for Everyone podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Krismer, and I'm so glad you're here. Well, on today's episode, Josh, Jason, and I sit down and we talk about why it's important to understand the authority of God, areas in which we compartmentalize our sin and our duty when it comes to judging those both in and outside of the church. Remember, as always, if you haven't gone back and listened to Sunday's message, we highly encourage you doing that before you move on with this episode. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you enjoy. Well, hey guys, how's it going? Well, I'm pretty good, Jason. How are you doing, buddy? I'm living the dream. Living the dream, okay. Yeah, no, everything's good. Yeah, we deal. made it out of the dark ages, and there's actual decent sports. So I don't know if we're going to go sports. But. Probably don't have to go sports again. But we have to feel like we ran that one out on the first episode, maybe. But that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, the, we are into the other dark ages, though, which means uh, it was still dark out when I got to church on Sunday morning. Mm. So that's the the downside of the fall season. There's a lot of upsides to fall, but days are getting a little shorter. I will say. I'm really excited, obviously, as somebody who just moved into the area and grew up here, and so I remember it, but we're not about to change time. We're not about to Uh fall back or spring forward, all that nonsense. So those of you who are new to Arizona, it is glorious. Your clocks never move. It is the best thing ever. It's a simple life. But it does, it, it will mess with your head that you're getting, it doesn't get light until 745 in December. But then so, it gets dark at six. So I feel like even if the time did change, it wouldn't really matter all that much because it would just get darker earlier. It is nice. I'm just, it is a good thing not to change time anymore. So yeah, that it is. Yeah. Uh, what else is going on? Uh, Josh, you mentioned something this morning about the, uh, the County fair is in town. Yeah. Right apparently now. the Yavapai County fair is, is in and apparently the state fair down in Phoenix because I was going to pick my wife up. Oh, it's huge. at the airport. Yeah, it starts like the end of this month and goes all the way through October. So it got me thinking about fairs. My wife had an opportunity to go to the Texas State Fair. That's a whole thing in itself, y'all. And then um, we went to the Louisiana State Fair. Pretty big deal too. It's in. It was where we lived. You know, fair food from fried everything to. And then I started thinking about our hometown. So Jason and I grew up in a really small town. We had the longest running horse show and fair in America. And you can look it up. It's there. So not like horse show, like rodeo, but like trotters behind. But anyways, it had a pageant and had all these things, which Jason has a very interesting piece to add on the pageant. <laughs> he was like to share with you guys. But it got me thinking of like riding rides at fairs. and Like it ain't happening, man. Like I'm not about to hop on one of those rides with people. I just not doing it. Like it's just not ever in my thing. So I wasn't a ride the ride at the fair kind of dude. I was like, hey, let's go eat the really good food. Have and you enjoy. seen the videos of like the rides tipping over and stuff like that? Yeah, or stopping yeah. or yeah. just no piece of me. They just they're traveling around being pulled by a pickup truck. Uh-huh. How do we think that seems like a wise thing? And they're all the rides that make your stomach hurt. And I was always coming after football. And so it was just like, yeah. This is never a good thing. So, Jason, what about your fair experience in Mercer County? Uh, dude, I was okay. You know, it's Redneckville. Of course, I'm riding the rides. Those carnies are my people. That's <laughs> <laughs> what are we even talking about? Of course, give me the zipper. I'm on it. The whatever that circle thing is that your picks you up off the floor. Oh, I'm yeah. all over it now. That was when I was a teenager. Like today, I. Just watch the tea cups at Disneyland and I get nauseous. So I can't do the spinny rides anymore. And that's all the county rides are. But my redneck son was out there this weekend. So he was totally, yeah, living the redneck dream. Of course he's at the fair. Of course. Of course. And now there's rumor that you once <laughs> were something at our fair. We would like to hear this, day. So, so you mentioned the pageant. So they did what they called a little Mr. and Mrs. pageant at the county fair. And 
I was in the little Mr. and Mrs. pageant and I have a ribbon in my house. I think I got fifth place and I got a fifth place ribbon. I don't know. Yeah, it's hurtful, right? I think there was six people in it. And I don't know how many, but I got a fifth place. I still have the ribbon of being in the little Mr. and Mrs. pageant in the Mercer County Fair. So there's that. I it's don't a know. big deal. It was. It's really a parent thing, right? So Yeah, of which, course. You don't. Yeah. As a five-year-old, you're not. Choosing yeah. this for yourself. So we probably need to talk to Kathy about this. <laughs> that was fantastic. And then, randomly, Brendan said he's never been to a fair. I haven't. I don't. Not to my knowledge. Again, we may have gone when I was a kid. I, I don't recall ever having gone to a fair. Though, the Arizona State Fair is a big deal down in the valley. Like Which I'm thinking we need to do a family trip. We all three need to go down and take Brendan to experience. That's wild, right? Fried butter or whatever the thing is. I'm not a big fried foods guy. Well, you will be if you go to the fair. Okay. You've not had it right. That's the point. Is that, that's, is that, that it? That's what you have to do. Yeah. So, like the the closest thing I could think of to a fair that I would have been to. There's this big. If you're from the Chicagoland area, anywhere near it, then uh, you know about the Taste of Chicago. It happens every year, and it's a big Navy Pier thing downtown. And and that would be like in my mind the closest thing that would have been to a fair. Uh, and then the other thing that I think of is, and I wonder if this contributes to me not going to any fairs growing up, but we moved, so from the city of Chicago, we moved north when I was young uh, to the town of Gurney, Illinois. And if you know anything about you know the northern Illinois area, there's two things about Gurney you probably know. One, Gurney Mills Mall. It's like the, a massive mall in the area. And then the other thing is there's a Six Flags Great America in Gurney. So there's this really cool, good amusement park there. So we do that fairly frequently. You know, the holidays, we'd go around Halloween, and there was always a big thing there and that sort of thing. So I'm wondering if that didn't contribute that to That makes me. sense. Yeah. Yeah. That, if, we didn't have that. It feels no. a little safer. Definitely. Although, man, I've got some stories from Six Flags in Louisville. So Is that right? It's a, probably another time for another pie. Maybe do an out. I'll tell you, but boy, yeah. I'm telling you. I've, and then Kings Island, obviously, where we yeah. grew up too, right? So I guess the, yeah, the whole point is really this morning, there's two groups of people, those who ride the rides and those who don't. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I can know a lot about you if you tell me which one you are. <laughs> well, and uh, just to hit on what Jason, not to run this out any any longer than we need to, to hit on what Jason mentioned a second ago, though, about, you know, being maybe a little... Uh, crossing the line of going, being the guy that rides the ride and being the guy that looks at it and gets a little nauseous. It makes me think of, uh, you know, the three of us as well as some of our team had an opportunity to go to Disney not that long ago. I think it was last October. We yep. were, uh, we were in Southern California. We had a chance to go to Disney and we did like one ride. And as we're looking around after we get off the first, I can't even remember what it was. We get off the ride and we're looking around and I look over at our friend, Kenny, <laughs> <laughs> And Kenny's not looking too hot. Not to throw him under the bus. Oh, we could totally chuck but, Kenny uh, under the bus. But he he was nauseous, and then he was just mad at himself. He was like, <laughs> "There's something going on." I used to love roller coasters, but he took one ride and he was done for the he day. Was he was done. He That's went right. home early. He did so. go home early. That's right. Yeah, I was. I so do remember that. There's yeah. something to it. Good times. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, hey, let's dive into our conversation uh, today after our sermon on Sunday. Um, and I just, let's start here. would love to hear for you guys as you not only were hearing the sermon on Sunday morning, but as we've been kind of preparing for, for this one, getting out of chapter one of Romans, this last sermon on chapter one, what are some of the things that, that, uh, felt impactful to you or stood out to you guys out of this message? Yeah. You know, just personally, obviously listening to it, um, having read it and then hearing it, um, you know, the list Man, it was so powerful uh, to see those 21 different sins on the screen. And I thought Jason did a really good job of having the magnifying glass and the mirror. So much so, like Diana and I were at home and we both were talking um, about the disobedient to your parents. And we, she just made a comment that was like, I definitely had the magnifying glass out there. We have four young kids and thinking about how sometimes they can be very challenging and disobedient. And we're looking at that instead of holding the mirror up to ourselves to go, oh, no, that was me. Like I was definitely that kid. And, you know, some of it, I, I see that in my boys and kind of laugh, but, you know, trying to get them to understand why that matters and why that's super important. It's, and it's so interesting that that's in the list. Like of all of the things that could be in the list, like that one is thrown in there 
But then you start thinking about the Ten Commandments and just that, like obey your mother and father and how there's a blessing tied to it. And so it does make sense, right? Like this familial piece of it. But yeah, definitely. The, the Like I said, the magnifying glass and the mirror were super helpful as you're walking through all of those. And again, it's really easy to, like you said, some of those are hard to see just by yourself. And that was a really good, just a really good analogy. So I really appreciated that way to just kind of see it. You know, some of them, like you said, are really natural. The murder one, you know, I thought was a great place to to dive out of like, hey, this is actually what Jesus says though. Mm-hmm. So man, we're, we all may be guilty. And then I love at the end how you said, hey, the wrath of God is being poured out because of not just homosexuality, but also because of our greed and our evil, our wickedness, our being disobedient to parents, strife, all those things. So really good way to wrap the bow around all of it. So we see everything makes the wrath of God come out. For me, it was just that last phrase of God gave them over again. So that's the third time. third time that shows up in the text so um just the for me i hope it was helpful the imagery of the the rope just the tug of war and god letting go of the rope um he gave them over he let them have what they were wanting so um that that for me was the most impactful just seeing god letting them experience what they've been fighting to experience and it doesn't end well for him. Yeah, and I guess, um, not to get, uh, I guess, too deep too quick, but that raises a question that the three of us were talking about a little bit beforehand, um, which was this. I feel like there's probably a lot of people that could have a really, really hard time reconciling this idea of a God who loves us and is gracious and has given up a, a ton, has sacrificed for us, well, in the same vein, saying that there's this same God who's willing to give us over and that it's important that we we know that. So how do you guys reconcile those two things as as this same God that that is the Lord of our life? Well, I think one of the things that um, it come it comes from a couple of different theological bents, right? that the idea of free will, that God is not going to make everyone do exactly what he wants all the time. He's not looking for robots. He didn't create robots. He gave us the opportunity to either sin uh, and stay in our sin or to experience his grace, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and to be empowered to come out from sin. So in in that sense, what God is doing is actually allowing us to choose to love him or choose not to love him. I mean, Jesus even put it, if you love me, you will obey my command. So he gives us the opportunity to do that. He does not um, force us to love him if we don't. And so, uh, again, I know there's some theological uh, backgrounds that would say there is no such thing as free will ever. Um, I don't think we're in that camp. But it is this idea that God allows us to have what our heart most desires. Um, and if that's him, we get him all that we want. And if it is not him, he doesn't force himself. So I think that that'd be where my mind goes to first. Yeah. Just a quick note and funny piece. When you were talking about the tug of war and you were saying you were the kid in the front, I was like, well, that was me. <laughs> I was definitely always the kid in the back, like put the rope around Josh, go, you know? So I did every time you, you know, I heard it a couple of times. I was like me and Jason, much yes. different childhoods uh-huh. for sure. You know, it comes back for me too. I think you, you touched on it. I can't remember if it was week one of this little three-part series or it was week two, but you were talking about, hey, those of you who have kids in the room and those of you who have grandparents or those of you who are grandparents, right? You know the things your kid's about to do and you know the consequences that comes. And finally, you just get to the point where you're like, okay, fine. If that's what you want to do, then make that decision. Um, and you know the consequences of the pain that's going to follow. So like I tie all that in with you, the week one of the idea of the creator. And so for me, if there really is a creator, like if God is the one who created the world, put all of this in motion, because of that, then there are consequences. Consequences as in like, there are things that come with that. There's good, bad, all of it, but there's also rules. And there are very clear designs 
of God saying, do this or don't do that. So for me in my life, I go, if I can be 100% sure that God created all of this, and I am, then I also can be okay with God then saying, okay, if you choose to live outside of the bounds that I have established, then you will fall prey to the consequences. Like you think of the relationship with Israel. Hey, do these things and I'm going to do this thing, right? And you see that. You see the consequences of living outside of God's design, but you also still see within that too. And I love how you reminded, even if it was five seconds of, but there is the gospel, there is Jesus. So even when we do break all the things, because we are guilty of those pieces, uh, Jesus is still sent for us, even though we haven't lived up to our end of the bargain. And so I think that's how I, I hold this, this, I see a loving God because yeah. I, I do know the end of the story. He sent us Jesus. So I'm not just stuck with all of my, he let me go piece, right? Yeah. And, and what is the point of dealing with those consequences? The point is for us to feel the weight of those decisions and bring us back to him. So that's that's the heart behind the pain. And again, that's why we do it with our kids. I let him... It should be why we do it with our kids. (laughs) It should be. We let them experience some pain so that they learn to trust us and listen to us and not cross that boundary again. So that's the hope. Um, And I think, again, that that does speak to the father heart of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's where my mom went to is essentially he's allowing the the worldly suffering we'll experience as a result of our decisions, right? Like we all at home, we call those the natural consequences. If Porter does something dumb and gets hurt, it's like, buddy, that was a natural consequence of what you just like jumping off the couch backwards, right? Yeah. You hit your head. Of course. (laughs) Of course. So he allows us to experience these things as a tool to turn us back to the goodness of living a life surrendered to him. That's, that's the way that I've always kind of reconciled the, uh, the difference, but um, so then I guess a second question on this here, the thing that stood out to me was that um, Jason, you mentioned like if you did your do- job half decent, like if you got a C minus, then everyone walked out of the room, hopefully believing about themselves that they are, they are fully sinful, right? There are, there is something on that list, probably multiple things on the list of, of sins that Paul laid out and we laid out on Sunday. Um, that they would fall into, right? Traps that they they fall into regularly. So then the question that you raised uh, is, hey, do we actually believe, and you raised it pretty quickly, do we actually believe that these sins, these this list of things are actually deserving of death? My question is, why does it matter that we believe that? Well, because... If we don't actually believe that, this is what brings us to the place where we distrust God. It's like because we want to put our morality um, above God's morality. How could God punish someone so severely for lying? And it's like, well, He's God. So the way the way I always try to think of it, this I think about it this way: that sin, and you guys have probably heard me say this before, sin is never about the the sin itself. It's not about the person who is sinning. The, the consequence of sin is always related to the one who has sinned against. So always use this illustration. So uh, let's think about lying for just a moment. Again, if, uh, if I lie to a stranger who's walking up and asking me for directions and I purposely tell them to go the wrong way, what are the consequences of that? None. If I lie to you, one of you guys, as a friend, you come up and talk to me about something and I lie to you. There's some consequence. There's some trust that's broken and I there's some pain there. Um, if I lie to a cop, that's not good. That'll get you in trouble. You lie to your wife, ooh, it, it ratchets up. You lie to a judge, then that really comes with some consequences. You lied to a federal investigator, you could go to prison. Like the the higher, the the, the greater um, authority that someone has, the greater the consequence of lying to them. So you lie to your kids, you do it all the time. There's no consequences to that. 
you lied to a federal investigator, you're going to prison. It's the same exact sin. The, the issue of the sin is not the one who is sinning or even what they're doing. It's the one who is sinned against. So when we think about that in relationship to God, that he is the almighty creator, he did set the rules, he did... He is the one who is perfectly holy. And then I sin against him. The consequences of that sin is magnified a billion times over from me sinning against one of you. So that's why we look at sin and we have to take it seriously. When we're sinning against God, all of a sudden we are sinning against the greatest being in existence, the one who created all of us. And so a sin against him is the greatest sin against anything, anywhere, anytime, ever. And so I don't think we've taken that seriously enough. We want to we just assume that God's morality is the same as if it was sin against me, and it's not. Yeah. That's really good. I, I think, too, that the word death obviously holds a couple different connotations of physical death, right? Like some of these things will get you killed, yeah. right? There is a actual consequence, but also spiritual right? There's this spiritual death that occurs. Um, you know, you just keep killing a little bit of yourself and a little bit of yourself and a little bit of yourself until you're just in this place where you're so far away from God. It almost feels like you can't come back, right? You just have taken this road. You've walked this path and your life is just a train wreck. Um, and it started with a little thing, and then it becomes another thing, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. And so many of us, I'm sure, listening have been there, or maybe are there right now. Um, and it, it started with this one little lie here and little lie there. I always think too, your parents would like, hey, if you keep telling lies, nobody's going to believe you, right? Like literally, you become an untrustworthy person. That's that is terrible. That this feels off. Like if you're always around somebody who's slandering people, you don't want to hang out with that. Like mm-hmm. you don't want to be. Like, you just don't want to be in community with those kinds of people. And so then you're stuck in isolation outside of even what God intended to be life-giving relationships. Like, that is a death within itself, you know? And so we think death instantly, like, because that's our framework of like, oh, well, yeah, one day when I'm 75, you know? And so we don't have that fear of it, you know? Just put it away, put it away. Oh, it'll happen to me one day, but not now. I think, you know, as I'm sure as people read that text, and I'm guilty of my own self, like, oh, well, yeah, one day I'll die, God. He said we don't see the gravity of what Paul is trying to get us to understand. And I would say, yeah, we do experience those small deaths, but I think what he's talking about here is the spiritual death. And you see that in the book of Romans. So we'll get there in Romans chapter 8. I mean, he specifically addresses that very issue that you just talked about, Josh. In, in chapter 8, verse 13, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And but he's not again. It's not about the physical death because if you don't live according to the you're still going to die. So the physical true. death is still happening. Yeah, true. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the word perish in in the old King James. That was the word. It was perish. And there's a difference. It is the spiritual death. It is the second death. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. There will be an eternal death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So if you're living by the Spirit, that doesn't mean you're going to physically live forever in this body. That's not how it works. You're still going to die, and you'll live eternally. So in that sense, I think the gravity of it is the spiritual, eternal consequences that most of us don't take seriously enough. So when we read that text, man, that that these sins— deserve death. What he's talking about is an eternal death. That these, mm-hmm. these have eternal consequences. And again, it's not just the sexual perversion that we talked about at the beginning of the chapter. It's these 21 things that every single one of us find ourselves on. These things deserve eternal punishment because they are sins against the creator who gave us a conscience on the inside, his word on the outside to tell us how to live, and we aren't doing it. So it is a rebellion against the Creator. And of course, every, even in our, even in every nation of the world, treason is punishable by death. Every nation in the world. When you 
go against the state or the king or the monarch, treason is always punishable by death. And when we decide that we're going to live a specific way that goes against what the king of kings has told us to do and to live and to be, we are committing treason against the king. Of course, it's going to be a punishable by death. Uh, again, we just don't put it in that framework um, that re- he really is the greatest authority overall. We kind of want to make ourselves the authority. Mm-hmm. And maybe, too, it comes back to our kind of theolog- theological thinking, our worldly thinking, church thing, whatever, of you know this idea of grace, right? And we definitely talk about it a lot in churches, maybe not as much of wrath. We don't talk about that in churches, and we've kind of touched that on the podcast. But I think that probably has to have— something to do with this then because i may read that passage but i really go well man i'm i'm good like jason i'm I, jesus loves me i've said i'm in like i said i believed i've done the things i get baptized i even come to church man, i'm a pretty good person da, 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 da. so i we may not even ever read that passage with a proper understanding of oh well i'm good I'll say the prayer at the end. I'm perfectly fine. So how does that play in? Like, so what's the challenge then for us as believers? How do we rub up against that? How do we constantly fight that battle? Well, it is a, it should be a battle. And I think that's what you're struggling with is it for many of us, it's not a battle. We don't struggle with it. Uh, Paul certainly did. Again, we're going to get to him in chapter seven and he's going to say, man, oh, I don't do the things that I want to do, and I do the things that I wish I wasn't doing, and who's going to save me from this body of death? And there is this struggle, and he, even Paul is, uh, I think it's in 1 Timothy, he's talking about struggling with, in, uh, in Philippians, like, man, I've got to, I do not want to be the one who's out here preaching the gospel, and then I'm not living up to it, and I miss out on the prize that I'm helping other people get. I mean, he he feels this tension of, It's not, I'm going to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. There is this sense of, man, it is not something to be taken lightly. I got to be in this thing. And that means to love him is going to be to follow him. And I want to do it the best that I can. Um, Not that we're trying to earn anything. We can't do that. But man, there is a tension. And it is a little bit scary when I talk to Christians who never feel that tension, that's a scary place to be. And I think, Josh, part, part of, you know, maybe an answer to your question is even just this idea, and this is kind of what we've been doing over the last three weeks, right? It's remembering as humans, as sinful, depraved humans, where is our natural order when it comes to eternity, right? It's not good. It doesn't, it doesn't look good in our sin, and it's that that em- emphasizes the grace of God in our lives as he frees us from that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Like, that's the thing I always go back to. is, And that's why I think these last three weeks, even though they've been hard and we've been grinding through them and, and we've gotten offended and, and it's been, you know, not as fun as it could have been. Uh, it is so important because it reminds us in our flesh, in our sin, outside of the grace of God through through Jesus, this is our natural order. And, and we have to remember that in order to even fully understand the grace of Jesus, or at least understand as much as we can this out of heaven, right? Um, so that's that's what my mind goes to. Yeah, I um, just, again, I just know there are people listening who are, we've just grown up in culture of church that has not clearly defined some of these things. And so it's so easy to even, like I said, read that passage and how many people have read Romans 1 and go, oh, well, that's that's not the loving God. That's not the loving God. The loving God wouldn't wouldn't punish me. You know, I'm, I'm good, you know? And so I, I just want to make sure that, again, like you said, we have spent three weeks very intentionally. It wasn't an accident. So that we all come away with the proper framework of, no, yeah, you deserve death. So then that should, because I know that, and I have been rescued, it then should lead to life change. It shouldn't just make me sit and wallow and go, I'm a terrible person. So so I think some of that too is, a, hey, if so if you've for three weeks been going, I really deserve death. Thanks be to God is some of the things Paul says. Okay, so how are you actually living that way moving forward? How are you living this appreciation of this grace that you have been given? It's not enough to just go, Oh yeah, things be our lives should change because of this. We should actually be different 
people, those 21 things should begin to disappear. Yeah. I mean, Paul's life sure changed, right? When right. he met Jesus. Yeah. Like that, that sure was a night and day difference. Yeah, 100%. So there's got to be some kind of transformation. Again, I just think putting it all together and like all these last three weeks is, you know, if you haven't listened to the messages, listen to them all. Maybe listen to them all. Sit down one, one sitting, listen to all hour and a half of them. So you get that weight of what Paul is trying to drive to. Because again, it's not a message that we naturally hear. And when we hear it, we check out. Because I don't want to hear how bad I am. Well, again, it's how bad I am compared to the Creator. Yes. And so, yeah, we can talk about God being loving. But in Scripture, you know, to to bring emphasis to something, a word is repeated. God is never called loving, loving, loving. He's never called merciful, merciful, merciful. He's never called forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. He is multiple times called holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Like, yes, he is all of those things, but he is holy above all of those things. And we 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 miss that part when we're just trying to live how we want to live and expect him to just be okay with it. That would go against the very nature of his own holiness. And so, yeah, that... All of this comes on in the backdrop of he is the creator God who is holy. He is sovereign over all. He is ruler over all. And we have to live up to his standard. We don't get to create our own. Yeah, that's that's good. Well, let's dig in um, now to a couple of questions we had from this past Sunday. The first one uh, is a direct result of something that we hit on um, probably a couple of times throughout the course of the message. Here's Here's the question. Uh, politics seems to be an area where many Christians compartmentalize and don't count as sin their degrading speech against their political opponents. Uh, could you expand on this a little bit more, Jason? Yeah, the obviously, I'm I'm assuming this one came from my let's go Brandon comment. Uh, there was a little bit of unease in the room on that one. Um, and again, this is one that we 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 don't get to compartmentalize. Uh, it, we just got to call it what it is. It is, it is slander. Like it is nobody who is putting that sticker or flag in their yard. Nobody's doing that to help win somebody to a political argument. Nobody's trying to educate someone on the, uh, economic issues of our day. Nobody, nobody's putting that out there, uh, to help, talk about uh, foreign aid distributions. Like we're not, those aren't, it isn't a conversation starter. It is simply used as an insult against a person, not a, not policies, not even politics, but a person. That's, that's all it is. And again, we could go back to the days of when president uh, Trump was in office there was all of that stuff too. And so it's not about one side or the other. It is a recognition that it is slander and it's sinful. It's just us defaming and degrading another person. And that's that's all those things are. And you're right. We do have a tendency. Christians do have a tendency to want to compartmentalize those things. Um, and we can talk about policies and we can talk about politics without slandering people. We can argue over principles without defaming a person. And I think that's um, that's what we've lost in the last 10 years. Yeah, I wonder why, you know, we as believers tend to struggle with the compartmentalization um, here, obviously, in politics, but also in other areas. It's kind of what I was thinking um, as you kind of asked that question, Brendan. What is the What is the reasoning behind that? Why is it so easy for us to accept or approve of a very different uh, type of lifestyle when it mm-hmm. comes to this area or that area. Like what, you know, like what is the why behind that reason, right? We see it. So we see it being played out, but why are we doing it? Yeah, this came up actually in our life group, Jason, this past, uh, this past week, a little bit uh, from a different angle. Um, uh, my observation, probably, you know, lacking wisdom. Um, but my observation is this, it, I think it's really, really easy to, because what we're talking about is like having this really, really stark, really black and white, 
opinion about, you know, things that are actually kind of complex, big people groups, whether it be political uh, parties or whether it be lifestyles that we don't understand or disagree with. I think distance, you know, the fact that we have isolated ourselves from people that are living within those different experiences, whether it be, you know, whatever, whatever those experiences are, I think that gives us this distance to where it becomes really, really easy to be able to have this stark uh, set of beliefs about these people or this stance against these ideals or uh, without having any consequences, right? Without having to actually like get messy in the lives of other people, right? People that now let's remember for our series through Proverbs, right? Are actually image bearers of the holy God, right? That we serve. Like these people are are made in the image of God and we are all living in our, our own sin and they may represent their sin in a different, a different way, but they are Im- image bearers of the holy God. And we forget that. And we don't do life with with people, you know, I'd say especially, I mean, maybe it's over the last 50 years, maybe it's longer in, in our, our country, <clears throat> this idea of tribalism and only surrounding yourself with people that think and act and talk like you think and act and talk. It's really, really dangerous. It isolates us. We, we create these silos in which we then have these really, really stark um, opinions of people who do, do life a little differently than we do. And I think that's just a dangerous thing. So I, I'd say, you know, that's the negative side of it. I'd say on the flip side, how do we help grow in these areas? Is it's like, man, just serve alongside people however you can. Think people that think differently rather than just getting offended, right? You know, actually get messy and get in the lives of, of people that look a little differently than you do, that grew up a little differently than you do and act a little differently. So this is something I've been, for whatever reason, that's the, your question's been on my mind the last month or so. And I just keep thinking like in my own life, right? Rather than, you know, looking through the magnifying glass, if I were to look at the mirror of my own life, <clears throat> in what areas have I been able to, to show empathy in areas that previously I didn't understand? Mm. And it's always just getting in the mess with people and experiencing life with people and trying to understand why people operate a certain way or think a certain, a certain thing. Um, and those things help me grow. Yeah, I think, that's good. We do need to be doing life with people who are different from us. That should absolutely be happening. Uh, it may not necessarily change our principles. It shouldn't change our principles. Those should come from Scripture. Obviously, we know that. Um, but it does help us to love people better um, when we're doing life. Um, Josh, I think about your question. The bigger question that you asked was, how do we do this? How does this... this um, how do we compartmentalize? How do we let that happen? And I think if we're really honest, the answer is because we haven't truly made Jesus Lord of our life, we've added him as a compartment of our life. Mm. So we, we've we taken this spiritual... So I think about it, I, about 12 years ago, I brought a dresser up on the stage and I talked about this very issue. And one drawer of the dresser is our financial life. One drawer is our family life. One drawer is our schedule. One drawer is my hobbies. One drawer is my whatever. And so you have all of these different, and we have a drawer for our our faith. We've got a faith drawer and we've got Jesus and he has the faith drawer. But somewhere along the line, we've just given him the drawer. And so all of the other compartments, my political life, my financial life, my family life, my schedule, my my sexual identity or pleasure or whatever, these are all different drawers and one doesn't necessarily affect the other. And what I what I tried to say in that message was, Jesus isn't interested in being the drawer. He's the dresser. Like all of these drawers fit into him. He's not one of the drawers. So I think that's the biggest issue. It's easy to compartmentalize Jesus out of my political life or out of my financial life or out of my sexual life if I just see him as my savior, he's the one that's going to get me to heaven one day, but it doesn't affect how I live my life today. And so he has to be both the Lord and the savior, the one who is who is over all of the drawers. He owns the financial drawer and the sexual drawer and the hobbies drawer and the family drawer. Like he owns all of these drawers. Uh, he is the hub. All of these are the spokes. Like they all flow out of him, not the other way around. So I think 
I think where we see this compartmentalization reveals that we have not made Jesus Lord over our entire life. Oh, that's really good. Thanks. Great answers. Yeah. Yeah. I think it hopefully helps people kind of work through. And again, it obviously gives them a very clear takeaway. So if I'm seeing some, I'm very different here than I am here. Why is that? And what can I do? And Mm -hmm. again, how do I see people? Uh, Because really the call is you're supposed to just love people. That's the call. Yeah. Right. And so how do we do that? Yeah. hundred percent. Uh, speaking of loving people, there's another question kind of around that that same vein, right? So there's here's the question. Um, how do we reconcile our call to have hard conversations with often which oftentimes is, you know, loving someone well, having a hard conversation? So how do we reconcile our call to have hard conversations with believers living outside of obedience to God? How do we reconcile that on one side with uh, a text, first Corinthians? five verses nine through 13 on the other side. So let me read that text and then we'll talk about where we may, uh, you know, see through a couple other texts, how to, how to kind of navigate what this looks like. So first Corinthians five, um, uh, chapter five verses nine through 13, say this, it's Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all to say, people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you have to leave this world altogether. But verse 11 continues to say, but now I'm writing you that you must not associate with people who claim to be brothers and sisters, but are sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunk, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. So I think the heart of the question is how in one breath uh, do we try to have these conversations these that lead people to Jesus or obedience to the word, but on the other in the other breath, we're being told, hey, don't even associate with these people actually. So how do you guys reconcile that? Yeah, I think that's, I love 1 Corinthians chapter five. It's a great, it goes both ways to help us understand how we deal with sin. So on the one hand, he says, when you're thinking about sinful people, outside of the church, it's none of your business. Like we should not, we should not even, it it shouldn't even get on a radar screen. It doesn't matter. We should not have an expectation that people who are outside of the church are going to live like they're inside of the church. That's not, that's not our business. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? That the, the question uh, initiates a negative response. It's none of your business. So that's what Paul says. And when he says, don't associate with sexual immoral people, and then he adds the qualifier. I'm not talking about people of the world. Uh, if that was the case, it would be beam me up, Scotty. You'd have to leave. You couldn't go to the grocery store, right? You wouldn't be able to go to Walmart if you didn't deal with sexual immoral people. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about those who are believers. So I think that's the first thing we need to make sure that we're understanding when we're dealing with sin, we have to only worry about, it is our responsibility to worry about that within people in the church who are our brothers and sisters. So um, if you are living with or working with people who are outside of the church, they do not claim to be Christians, it's not your responsibility to judge them into the kingdom and tell them how bad they are. We just want to help those people learn to love Jesus help them learn to surrender to Jesus. Then Jesus and the Holy Spirit can help them as they're working through the sin issues. Um, so we're not trying to get people perfect by not sinning. That's not our responsibility for those who are outside the church. Now, for those who are inside the church, what is the responsibility that he's talking about? It is this picture of getting them to a place of repentance. So if they're not repenting, if they're living in such a way where they say, I'm following Jesus, but their life does not reflect that, he says, we do have a responsibility to do something about that. And we got to lay what Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 5, we got to lay that beside what Jesus himself taught in Matthew 18. So in Matthew 18, Jesus tells us the, the way that we're supposed to help people deal with their sin. So in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, it says, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go point out their fault just between the two of you. So I have a responsibility. 
a command by Jesus, go point out their fault. You see a brother or sister in Christ who is living in sin, you have a responsibility. Go point out their fault. That's what he says. If they listen to you, you've won them over. So that's the end of the thing. If they say, oh my goodness, I can't believe you're right. You're right. I'm doing this thing and I shouldn't be doing it. I'm so sorry. I'm And I repent and I'm changed. He says, that's great. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen to you, take one or two others along. So you go, they don't listen. They don't repent. They say, buzz off, don't care. You take two or three others and you go and you have the conversation. Look, we all three see this thing in you and you're not living to the standards of Jesus that you claim to be following. It says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Treat them as you would an unbeliever, which doesn't mean that we just um, kick them out of our life. That's not how we treat unbelievers. But we do help them to understand that they're not in. Like you can't have this unrepentant sin and still call yourself a brother or sister. So that's that's the difference. So, um, so hopefully we understand we have a responsibility to talk about these hard conversations with people who are believers and hold them to account. Um, we don't have that for those who are outside of the church. Um, and so we we got a responsibility. We got to do the thing. And there is a process to it. Do it one-on-one, take it two or three people, bring it to the church. And if they're still unrepentant, then recognize, essentially recognize they're not in the church anymore. Um, And that's a hard thing for us to say, but that's our responsibility. How much does a personal relationship with the person play into this? Like does, am I just walking around calling out anybody in the church now? Um, Or is it, does a relationship need to be formed to have these hard conversations? How do we how do we go back and forth with that? Oh, I think I think when we say if they're a brother or sister and we we know them to be a brother or sister, I I think it's our responsibility whether we know them or not. A hundred percent is going to be more effective hmm. if we know them. But uh, my goodness, if I see a Christian that I know who attends the Heights, for instance, and they're doing something awful. I still feel like I've got a responsibility to say, wait, 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 what? What are we doing? This, you call yourself a believer. Now, that is not going to land for them like it would if it was their pastor who had that conversation. But I, I think we, we still have to say something. Um, man, we've got a responsibility. Um, like the passage from James talks about how that, like, we, we will save them. If we have these conversations, there's a potential to save their lives if we have these conversations. And if we ignore it, what are we doing to them? It is not an act of love just to ignore it. Yeah, yeah, the James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save the man from death and cover over a multitude of sin. Yeah. Yeah, and again, we're not talking about physical death. Because mm-hmm. you're gonna die if you yeah. he's gonna die anyway, right? All of the apostles have died, they all died. Everybody's gonna die. Mm. What is what he's saving them from is a heart of unrepentant sin mm-hmm. that that we all have to be saved some from. So not having the conversation is not loving them. Like having that hard conversation is an act of love because you care more about their soul than you do about your comfort. That's good. And I would give one, I think a little bit to poke into Josh's relationship question. I think what what relationship allows is a better understanding of the life of the person in which you're seeing the sin in, right? Because I think it could be really, really easy to see someone, you know, across the parking lot or to see someone maybe on social media, right? And say, oh, because they're doing this thing, it's inherently sinful. Because they posted this thing, it's inherently sinful. And to make a snap judgment without actually knowing their heart or knowing, oh, is this actually a a, a sinful position that they're taking? So I would just give that quick warning right. of like, man, if we're if we're gonna step into that space of helping lead this person to Jesus more effectively, we better make sure that it is actually sin. This thing that they're doing, if it's not blatant, you better at least have a conversation. Yeah. And let's 
go back to Matthew 7. So Jesus, again, he tells us how to judge. And he uses the picture of, hey, first take the plank out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in somebody else's. So we're always evaluating ourselves before we're evaluating anybody. And I like to use the, the literal image. So have you ever taken a speck out of somebody's eye? Like if you ever had a kid who has had a piece of dust or something in their eye, how do you take that out? Very gently. Absolutely. You're using calm words. You're not screaming at your kid when you're, how dare you have a thing in your eye? You're so, no, you have to talk calmly and you can't take a speck out of somebody's eye from across the room. Like you have to be in, in a very intimate moment. There has to be trust that is built that allows you to take a speck out of somebody's eye. Like you can't do that out of in anger you can't do that from across the room there has to be a sense of connectivity that somebody allows you to put your finger in their eye so back to your point yes relational connection absolutely helps um but whatever my relational connection i can't utilize that as an excuse not to say something um if it is if i'm the only one who has the ability to say something if i see something um and i just let it slide mm-hmm. I'm not loving them. Yep. Uh, but it should be done gently. It should be done in humility, taking the plank out of my own eye before I worry about the speck in theirs. But it it is not loving them to let them live in sin and not say anything. Because essentially what I'm telling them in that moment is you can go to hell and I'm okay with it. Hmm. I thought of, uh, again, going back to our just, Again, because I've been in it so recently, is this you know call to obedience CTO stuff? And there's a chapter in that first book about admonish, admonishing people, saying the hard things to folks. And part of the process is first do your confession. You know, forgive the person first. If there's anything holding up against you, then you do your confession so that you go to them with the acknowledgement of like, hey, I'm very much a sinner. Um, I need to say this really hard thing. And one of the things it says is like, it's not your job to bring about conviction. But if you feel the Holy Spirit is prompting you to have the conversation, it probably means you need to have the conversation, right? So, so that was definitely a, a great piece. So again, those of you who are group leaders, um, you know, you can pull that chapter out this week and, and have that, use that as a backdrop to, hey, how do we have these hard conversations when we see sin? The second thing that kind of driving this is, so I thought of our conversation we had right before this. So people that we see with the flags, people that we see with the Let's Go Brandon stuff. How do we as believers, and, and the other things, right? But that one's just obviously a part of our conversation. We, I, we need to be having those conversations, but I think so much of our culture, because I thought of strife in here, there's so much tension, even as believers, like you were saying, man, we just can't even have conversations anymore. So I think some people are just, they just don't want to have the conversation, right? They have a parent or they, like they've, they've gone terrible. Like it's just not been good. Like you said, the Thanksgiving dinner tastes gross because of it. Like there's been such a, a shift within our cultural narrative that we as believers, we, don't, we aren't even willing to have the conversations anymore because it's just going to turn into an argument when it really is trying, maybe trying to be done out of place of love. And so how do we balance that tension? Because again, I, I I think there are some who are like, man, I've tried, Jason. Like, I, I can't do this anymore. It's exhausting. Like, I just don't want to have these conversations. But again, I don't want them to go to hell. Right. So, you know, one of the ways that I'll say it is sometimes we have to be willing to risk the friendship to save the friend. Mm-hmm. That I love you enough to, to call out the sin that I see in you, and I will risk offending you. If it helps, do what James 5 says. It turns you from the error of your ways. Um, Now, we do have to admit, not every political conversation has biblical connotations. Like It's not about trying to get them into our political worldview. It's about getting them surrendered to Jesus. So that's the ultimate thing. So some conversations we just don't need to have because it's just... (laughs) It's, it's temporary and unfruitful. That's right. Yeah. So it really is about how do we help them get to know and love Jesus? And you can be on the other side of the aisle and still love Jesus. You don't have to think everything that I think on the political issue to know and love Jesus. We can, again, those aren't the end all be all. Um, so I don't have to fix everything 
every uh, every disagreement. I don't have to have perfect um, agreement on all of those things. I just want to get them to know and love Jesus. And I think just some of so much of right now of our culture is that is the, all the conversations. All of it is based off of the, they don't agree this and they don't agree that, and it's always coming up. And so it is. It, it's become this just hotbed. It's like, oh, I don't even want to step into that. But there are those other 21 things. Hey, I see this greed in you. Hey, man, the the choices you're making, the vac- the 17 vacations and the three vacation homes are the, you know, the way in which you talk. Like, man, I saw, like you said, the smile when you heard about so-and-so's life falling apart. Hey, what is that? Like, what's really behind that? You know, again, but I think so much of our lack of being able to have conversation across the board has really put a lot of believers in this place. We're not doing what Jesus is telling us to do anymore because we hear the judging, the Matthew 7, and instantly, how many of you listening went, oh, no, no, only God can judge me. How many people think that? How many people are, are believing that? And so because of, again, just our lack of ability to have a really good conversation with people, there's so many things that we're just not helping other people see. And we're not doing what, Jesus has told us. We've allowed culture to now influence our church and our conversation because you read through the New Testament and all of First Corinthians is one giant hard conversation that Paul is having with a church there in Corinth. And he didn't shy away from it. But again, we look at Second Corinthians and we see that love piece. And so I, I just that's what I just thinking through when this question is, I, man, we just have not done a great job mm-hmm. as the church so yeah. in this. Oh. Yeah, so Jesus doesn't tell us not to judge. He tells us how to judge. And again, we know that because in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul actually says about sin that's addressed specifically in 1 Corinthians 5, I have already passed judgment on this person. Like, he's already done it. It's past tense. I've already passed judgment. Like, we are commanded to judge one another for the sake of their own souls. That's what James tells us. So, um, we have to be willing to have these conversations, and they are best done in relationship. Yeah, 100%. I think just, yeah, circle back to this First Corinthians text. It's just, it's so important that we recognize who it is that Paul is talking to. I think as throughout this entire conversation, that's what stood out to me was uh, Paul's talking about people with unrepentant sin, unrepentant hearts that have likely rejected the Matthew 18 process of, of pure judgment, right? And then he's saying, after all of this, right, after all of this work of all the things you're called to do, uh, then don't associate with these people, right? If they're if they're wolves within the church in sheep's clothes, that's that's what I'm reading uh, reading through in this. So. But even at the end of that, I'm gonna flip to it real quick. I'm sorry, I wasn't there yet. But I love I love as you're turning that. I love how you said treat them like an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. And again, how are we supposed to treat unbelievers? That's right. we, they st- we still should have them a part of our life. I, I don't know if I've ever had anybody draw that piece out. That's such a good, I was sitting there and I was like, man, that's a really good, mm-hmm. that's a really good reminder. Like, I'm not supposed to just be like, well, I'm done with unbelievers. Get away from that's me. Right. I don't want anything to do with you. No, I'm still supposed to love them too. But you but you help them understand you're not in. Mm. That's the thing. There, there is, there's consequences. So, um There is this, uh, sorry. So do not associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy. I'm writing this, that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. Again, that's the key. Um, yeah, right. But a sexually immoral, idolater, do not, even, do not even eat with such people. With What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? And the answer is yes. God will judge those outside. That's his job. He's going to judge the outsiders. We do have a responsibility to judge those who are on the inside. So we can't we can't shy away from these conversations. We've got to be willing to love people enough. Um, and why does he say that? Why does he, sorry, I'm going to back up. Why does he say that we should be doing this? He said, look, look in verse three. I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord on the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled, I am in your spirit uh, and the power of the Lord is present. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The reason that you have these hard conversations is you make their life miserable in the temporary portion of this life so that we save their souls. Like that's why we're doing this. So it's still, we have to have this eternal 
perspective, we're going to have these hard conversations, even if it costs me my relationship with them, in the hopes that the pain of being disconnected from me, being disconnected from the church, actually draws them back to Jesus. Yeah. Which is one of our, again, one of our core values, which is we do the hard things. And in the we do the hard things is we have the hard conversations. And I think we think, oh, that means I'm going to tell non-believers about Jesus. No, it actually means I'm going to be in relationship with people and I'm going to have conversations that are really, really uncomfortable and really hard and really yep. difficult. But because this is who Jesus calls us to be. Again, for so many people, they've, but this is again not a message we're hearing. Yeah. We're not hearing this. Maybe maybe we've never heard this in a church, right? Yeah. It's, it's only been left up to the pastor, to Jason's job or Brenda's job or Josh's job mm-hmm. to go and have these really hard conversations. And what we're trying to say is, no, all of us as believers yeah. within the church, if you call Quad City home, it's like no, we're supposed to like oh yeah, do this with one another. Yeah, do the hard things is not exclusive, right? We could also just have called that core value, just be obedient. Right, because if we're being obedient, we're doing all the hard things. Yeah, all the hard things of Scripture. So, all right, guys. Well, that's a wrap. Uh, looking forward to this next week as we kick off chapter two in Romans. See you guys then. Amen. Well, we hope that that conversation uh, helped flesh out some questions from our message on Sunday and gave you a little more understanding around the text that we covered this past week. We really are looking forward to next Sunday where we get to dig into chapter two of the book of Romans. We hope you join us then. Can't wait to see you soon.